All right, well, good evening, everyone, and we're going to pick up in Daniel 1.8 and move on from there. We'll do a quick conclusion. I do appreciate uh, a couple of you mentioning how much you got out of the historical information last week. You know, sometimes we feel like maybe we're getting a little bit bogged down giving you all the historical background, but unfortunately, too many times people never are able to link the history with the scripture. And the more you understand the history, and you know, <clears throat> people for ages have been talking about how the Bible's not accurate and you can't trust it. And it's interesting that after hundreds and hundreds of years of really pretty intense archaeological study, particularly in the last, say, 500 years, Every single archaeological discovery we have ever found backs up the Bible. There's never been a contradiction found uh, between the record of Scripture and the record of history, and that's extremely important. Now we live in an age where everyone thinks there's a huge discrepancy between science and the Bible. And, of course, you know how serious our scientists are about science now. Uh, because they're telling us that men can be women and women can be men and men can have children and on and on and on. Uh, we, we are actually uh, slowly declining into absolute absurdity uh, when it comes to basically all the professional fields of uh, education and, uh, and intellectual pursuit. So... The longer we live, the longer the world turns, the more the Bible proves itself to be true over and over again, and we can have uh, confidence that it always will. Well, let's pray as we begin this evening and uh, open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 1, and I'm going to bring in again a little bit more of history, and um, we talked last time about various elements of Bible study and I try to balance between all of those different elements because they're so important uh, for our understanding. So let's pray. We'll get started. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come before the throne of your grace, we bow our heads and we bow our hearts before your awesome power and glory and wonder. And Father, we realize that we are living in very historic and probably very perilous times. And yet, Father, the record of people like Daniel, and even as we mentioned last week, Ruth and Boaz, uh, there have always been people who have lived in tumultuous times, and yet because of their faithfulness, because of their impact on those around them, uh, they have lived lives protected by your grace. We know that you have assured us that there is a wall of fire around every single one who believes in you, everyone who treasures your word and who seek to fulfill it. And so as we give ourselves to prayer this evening before we begin, we pray for our nation. Uh, we see our nation coming off the rails. Uh, it seems that our leaders have uh, been struck with absolute insanity sometimes. But Father, we look beyond the veil, and we know that beyond the veil and the clouds of 
obscurity, you sit on the throne and you rule over the affairs of men. We are confident that you will guide and direct not only the course of history, but the course of each and every one of our lives to the fulfillment of your perfect plan. And we rest in that confidence this evening as we open your word once again to this amazing book that has so much to teach us about history, about prophecy, about doctrine, and about our relationship to you. So give us open ears and open hearts this evening as we open your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to kind of go quickly through, I don't know if we went through these verses, but I think they're important in relation to the idea of Daniel and his friends and their victorious faith over what to them had to be absolutely devastating and disastrous circumstances. So you'll remember John 16.33, and I know you've got this in your notes, but always remember that there are literally thousands of people that are listening. You'd be amazed how many people are listening to the classes that are being taught uh, in this little gathering. And I quite often hear from them, and they ask me questions of things that sometimes you ask after class, and I explain to you, but it's not on the recording. So uh, for their sakes, I go through a lot of this that you have in your notes. <clears throat> John sixteen thirty three. Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And then 1 John 5, 4 and 5, John remembered the words that Jesus spoke in the upper room and he recorded, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And then moving into John's later writing in the book of Revelation, Revelation 12, 11, speaking of the tribulation saints, he said, and they overcame him, that is, overcame the devil by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives even unto death. And of course, we're all familiar with Isaiah 40, 31, probably one of the best known passages of the Old Testament. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. And I have in parentheses there the word exchange. It's not the idea that your strength is renewed. It's that you exchange your strength for His. So they shall exchange their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And I just point out that the Hebrew word for wait, chava, is the strongest of the five Hebrew words for faith. It's a word that means to take little strands and weave them together into an unbreakable rope. And the idea is that day by day we're taking the promises, the principles, the doctrines, the Word of God, we're weaving those together into a rope, and that rope is a rope of faith that is unshakable and unbreakable. There are three theological emphases uh, actually four in this first eight verses that are not in your notes. You might want to just jot them in the sidelines because these are themes that will be coming up again and again. The first is Jesus Christ controls human history. It's very important for us to bear that in mind. Jesus Christ controls human history. Of course, the 
skeptics and the agnostics and the atheists would say, well, it doesn't look like he's doing a very good job. Actually, he is. Why would he allow so much sin, sorrow, and suffering? Because that's what we choose. Look at our own nation. Look at this nation when it was strong in faith. Look at it when our founding father spoke again and again about the hand of providence and about the God of history and the God of nations. And look at the kind of country we were at that time. Look at the decisions that have been made to turn us away from all of those founding principles and look where we are now. Why would God allow this to happen? The answer is simple. It's what we've chosen. God allows us the freedom to choose, but he also imposes on us the consequences of those decisions. Secondly, history revolves around God's redemptive plan. You know, we often draw a timeline to explain events, and we have eternity past, and the timeline stretches to eternity future, and then in the middle we have the cross. And if you think about it, Everything in the Old Testament is pointing to the cross and everything in the New Testament points back to it. The cross is the greatest event of human history and not just the cross but obviously the resurrection as well. So history revolves around God's redemptive plan. Third, God's power in his word is unleashed. God's power, and I mentioned this to you last time and I think it's already up on the internet or tech guru uh, has, has put this up about the power of God's word, but it's unleashed by obedience and prayer. All of the power of God is vested in these words right here, in the truths contained in Scripture. When we receive those by faith, we develop supernatural strength. You know, everything today is about bigger, stronger, you can't watch a show without some hulking guy walking around, um, you know, showing supernatural capabilities. But what Daniel and his friends actually will demonstrate for us, uh, we're only a chapter away. By the time we get into chapter 3, we have the, the three Hebrews in the fiery furnace. Show me a uh, modern-day hero that would be able to go through that and come out alive. When Isaiah says that those that wait, kava, they weave together over a prolonged period of time those principles and truths of Scripture, they develop supernatural strength and power. And we have seen it, I'm sure many of you have seen it in your life, things that happen, events that take place, things that are accomplished possibly through prayer, there's no other explanation but supernatural divine power and intervention. So God's power is unleashed in his word by obedience and prayer. And then the fourth point I would make, God's grace is seeking and working through those who are willing to believe. God's grace is seeking. You remember Jesus told the woman at the well in John chapter 4, verse 23 and 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him will worship in spirit and in truth. Spirit meaning the spirit of God is in control in my life, and I am focused on the truth of his word, and that is considered worship. It's not just the time that we sing. It's not just a time that we pray. It's everything we do in our life. Our whole life becomes an offering of worship, as 
Paul tells us in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice so that every day, every activity, uh, everything that we do is actually reflecting God's grace and God's power. And then the next thing that I want to point out before we move on, I mentioned to you last time there is an apparent contradiction. You know how people love to say there's contradictions in the Bible. So look at this with me, if you will, in verse 1. Daniel 1.1, 1, 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. So we're in the third year. And then if you will, turn back with me to Jeremiah 25. It kind of amazes me that there are people who spend an awful lot of time trying to find these apparent contradictions, and yet they won't spend time just studying and believing God's Word. Jeremiah 25.1 The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It appears to be a contradiction. Why the contradiction? Well, it's really very simple. Jeremiah is writing to Jews, and he is using the Jewish measure of time. The uh, Chaldeans, the minute that a crown prince, Nebuchadnezzar, we'll just call him Neb, the moment that he ascended to the throne, they counted that his first year, even though it may only be two or three months. If he comes in in November, he's got two months. That's his first year. The Jews don't reckon that way. They reckon, kind of like people do with birthdays, you go a whole year and then you're one year old. I've never really understood that from the time I was a kid. I couldn't figure out if I had my first birthday, my first year's gone. Now I'm in my second year. So I've always reckoned it that way and when people ask me how old I am, I always tell them a year ahead of what they think because I'm in that year. Um, I don't know if you ever stopped and thought about this, but when you celebrate your first birthday, you're celebrating something that's over. Why not celebrate through the whole year, that year? So that explains the difference between the Jewish reckoning and remember that Daniel's in Babylon and Daniel is using Babylonian reckoning. And in fact, as we'll see, uh, turn with me to Daniel 2.4. In Daniel 2.4 it says, Then the Chaldeans spoke to, to the king in Aramaic. Aramaic is also called Chaldean or Syriac. From verse 4 of chapter 2 through chapter 7, Daniel writes in Aramaic. Everything else in the book is written in Hebrew. Why is that? Well, because he realizes that his audience is largely a Babylonian audience. And while his book has continued down to the present day, at the time he was writing it, his concern was having an influence and an impact on his Gentile neighbors, uh, fellow regents in the government, uh, fellow authorities, and so on and so forth. So he's writing in their language. So because of little simple things like this, it's very easy to resolve what people call great contradictions. And frankly, what difference would it make if one guy said in the third year and someone else said in the first year, what great doctrine does that 
shape. Obviously, it doesn't. All right, so we've seen Daniel and his uh, commitment to be faithful to God, and apparently, as I mentioned before, that was his decision, and the other three came along for the ride. Now we move into verse 9 through 16. If you will, let me read it. It says, Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of eunuchs. I want you to notice immediately that while Daniel is accepting God's word, its authority, its guidance and direction on earth, those decisions are having an effect in heaven. In other words, God is blessing Daniel's faithfulness. And we see that starting out immediately. This is what we call the providence of God. Now, God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? I might point out just as far as age is concerned, uh, I've done a little bit more study in this, and some consider the fact that Daniel and his friends, when they were taken, were probably 14 years old. And the reason for this is because there are Babylonian records that say that when they did something like this, the training period was from the age of 14 to the age of 17. So they would have been about 14 years old when they were taken. And they had three years of training. He says, why should he see your faces looking worse than the men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. In other words, I'm going to be in trouble because I haven't done what he commanded me to do. Daniel, in tremendous insight and discernment, comes up with a plan. Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. As I've mentioned before, vegetables means anything that grows from seeds. Could be vegetables, could be fruit, could be grains, any of those things. Verse 13, then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men that eat the portion of the king's delicacies and as you see fit, deal with your servants. In other words, Daniel proposes a compromise. He proposes a, a test. And this is the first of three lessons that we're going to learn in the book on civil disobedience. You know that the Bible teaches civil disobedience. We see it all the way through the Bible. Daniel, of course, is one of the great books where we can actually break it down into three different principles based on chapter 1, chapter 3, and chapter 6, the great testing chapters. And we'll see how that goes. Verse 14, so he consented with them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables. One of the first parallels that I make there in your notes is a parallel between Daniel and Ezra. Uh, Ezra, of course, went through at least a part of the captivity. You'll remember that when they returned at the end of the captivity after the 70 years, Ezra was the priest 
that went back with the people. Uh, if you hold your place here, we can see the decision that Ezra made. If you go to Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, and Ezra, Nehemiah. You all keeping up with me? Ezra 7, verse 10. Notice the parallel here. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach the statutes and the ordinances in Israel. This is a verse that I use a lot when I go various countries and I'm teaching young men. I'm going to have the opportunity before long to be in Nagaland and I'll be teaching the Bible Institute students there for four or five days. I usually bring this up because to me this is a critical point for anyone who considers going into the ministry. I want you to notice what he did. First of all, it tells us that he had prepared his heart. Uh, very similar to what Daniel had done. He had set his heart. In other words, he had made a determination within his soul. And there are three things that he determined to do. And the order is very important. Number one, to seek the law of the Lord. In other words, he was going to get into the Word of God and he was going to dig into the Word of God and study diligently, study to show yourself approved unto God, as Paul says in Timothy, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. You know, there's a lot of confusion in Bible study when the Bible is not rightly divided. The word literally means to cut straight. You have to cut straight as you deal with the Word of God, both to separate and to synchronize various parts of the Bible. So Ezra prepared his heart, number one, to seek the law of the Lord. What does God say in Jeremiah 29, 13? You will seek me and find me when? When you search for me with all your heart. So here's Ezra. He's going to seek the law of the Lord. Secondly, this is a very important step, and it's one that we who are teachers uh, are often in danger of failing to take and to do it. It's one thing to study it. It's one thing to know it. It's something else to teach it. But in between the studying of it and the teaching of it, there needs to be the doing of it. And by the way, I'll point out, as I already mentioned last week, none of us are perfect. And quite frankly, that's a good thing. I would suggest if you ever get to a point where you no longer feel your need, you no longer feel your brokenness, you're in a bad way. You, have you ever thought that God allows us to fail for a very important lesson? We need His grace. God's grace goes to the broken. God's grace goes to the needy. And any time a Christian thinks that they have arrived, and believe me, I've talked to people who told me they no longer sin. I almost, you know, want to... I don't know. Well, I want to, yes, give them a slap. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> See if they, well, actually I did that one time. I had a lady that told me not only that she no longer sinned, she said she had never sinned. And I said, then why did you need Christ? And she said, well, it was the right thing to do. 
So I very wisely, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, turned to her husband and I said, does she never sin? And he just kind of got this weak, sickly little smile on his face and looked at the floor. And I said, looks to me like your husband agrees with me. And she started getting really upset and she started saying some things that weren't very nice. And I said, oh, look, you finally sinned. Well, I also told her, I said, you just sinned because you just lied. And that kind of got her all worked up. And before long, she was like, you know, going off like a fireworks factory. And uh, it was obvious that she still sinned. But at any rate, to do the things that he studied and then to teach the statutes and the ordinances in Israel. This is what made Ezra one of the unique priests in the entire history of the nation of Israel. So back to Daniel, you see at the bottom of your page there the stair steps of destiny. And I bring these in because this is something that came to me years and years and years ago while I was studying and I kept seeing these things popping up. And this is a part of what I mentioned about doctrinal assimilation. It's great to study in Daniel, it's great to study in Matthew, it's great to study in Revelation, but if we don't take the pieces of those various parts of the puzzle and see how they link together, we never really can remember them. Last week, what did we cover? The seven baptisms. For some of you, that was probably an entirely new thing. As you look that over and you begin to realize and think in your mind, okay, the, the Bible in the New Testament talks about seven different baptisms. I can remember that there are four in one camp and three in the other. And I seem to remember that four of them don't use water and three of them do use water. And then you begin to think of the baptism of Moses, the baptism of the cross, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of fire. That's the first four. And by the way, those are real baptisms. And what we mean by that is they actually affect a change. A change takes place. There's an identification there where a change actually takes place, what we call real baptisms. And then we have the last three, the baptism by John, the baptism of Jesus, and Christian baptism. They all use water, and they're all symbolic. And the question is, what do they symbolize? What do they represent? Because it is possible for you to have a symbolic baptism, and it won't affect you at all, depending on the condition of your heart, but a real baptism absolutely has an effect on those who are baptized. When the children of Israel were baptized under <coughs> Moses in the cloud and in the sea, it affected an absolute change in their lives. They went from being slaves to being free people. Okay? So we pull these things together, and as we look at these, what I refer to as the stair steps of spiritual destiny, this explains your life. If you'll dwell on this a little bit, it will explain your life. So here they are. Number one, attitude. Everything begins in the human realm, in the human domain, with attitude. And the great thing about each of these is that the Bible breaks them down into one or the other. The Bible always talks about right and wrong, good and evil, light and darkness, truth and lie. And here we have it. 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6, we're either humble or arrogant at any given moment. At any given time, we are either in an attitude of humility or an attitude of arrogance. And I'm talking about toward God. 
Based on our attitude, we develop priorities or what we call values. And 1 Corinthians 3.1 tells us there are only two kinds. They're either spiritual or carnal. There's no middle ground. Based on the priorities we have, we make decisions. And Ephesians 5.15 tells us that those decisions are either wise or foolish. Decisions produce actions, the fourth thing. <clears throat> and Hebrews 5.14 tells us our actions are either good or evil. And all actions have results. Hebrews 6, 7, and 8 tells us that it is possible for us to enjoy blessing or cursing. Now, a lot of people don't like the word cursing because they think of it in terms of God putting a curse on someone. That is not how the Bible uses the term cursing. Do you know what cursing is in Scripture? It's when God lets you suffer the consequences of sinful conduct. That's cursing. We are suffering the results of our own decision. And if you look in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, you see that the whole world is without excuse because the whole world has the freedom to seek truth or reject truth, to follow God's guidance, to reject God's guidance, to make decisions that are right and honorable or decisions that are sinful and destructive. And we begin this cycle from first from Romans 1.18. And you'll remember how as it goes down and down and down in verse 24, 26, and 28, there's a little phrase. You remember what it is? God gave them over. God gave them over to the lust of the flesh. God gave them over to the deception of their mind. God gave them over to the will of their own heart. And therefore they suffer the things that they suffer. And there are people who live in extremely difficult and harsh circumstances who are blessed and joyful. We've seen them all over the world. There are people who live as all of us do. Believe me, we live better than kings in some parts of the world. We have been the guests of royalty in tribes and other places around the world. And they do not live like we do. But... The one thing that always strikes us when we're living among people who have nothing and they'll share everything they have with you, they're happy. They're joyful. And yet we see people constantly in our own country who have everything. As one pastor in Nigeria said to me, the poorest person in America is stinking rich. <coughs> it's hard for us to comprehend that. People that are the homeless living on the streets they have more than chiefs of tribes in many parts of the world. And, and yet they squander it. They don't take advantage of it. So if I have, if you look at the little chart, if I had, have a humble attitude, I'm going to develop spiritual priorities. It's impossible that it would be any other way. If I am humble before God then my values are going to be spiritual values. And if I have spiritual values, it's going to lead to me making wise decisions. And if I make wise decisions, my actions are going to be good. And by good, uh, the, the common word for good, agathos is usually used for divine good. Kalos speaks of that which is honorable or noble. You know, there's, there's good according to God's standard, which is perfect. That never varies. And there's good according to human standard, which is a person who is noble, honorable, 
a person who is loving and kind and so on and so forth, we would use that term good for that person. If I produce good actions based on wise decisions, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to receive blessing. You know, I talked to a 21-year-old man in Cummins State Prison in Arkansas. We used to have a ministry to the prisoners down there. We'd go down every week. And uh, he told me he was in for life. He said, I just had my 21st birthday and I'm in for life. He said, I will never see the outside of these walls. He said, I can't tell you how much I thank God that he put me here. He said, I'm here because of decisions I made and actions that I took. But here is where I found Jesus Christ. And he said, I don't need to be out there because I can't function out there. Here, he said, I'm a part of a ministry. I'm a part of a group that gathers together and studies the Bible. And he said, my life is rich. My life is full. This is where I need to be. That's an obvious example of someone who, from a whole raft of bad decisions that landed them in horrible consequences, did a complete reversal from, and it all started with, arrogance to humility. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and what does Peter tell us? James says he'll lift you up. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6, God wages war against the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It doesn't say if you're in a good circumstance. It doesn't say if you're living in prosperity. It says no matter where you are, whatever your circumstance and situation may be, God is able to bless you if you'll humble yourself under his mighty hand. So, Think now how these relate to David, uh, to Daniel. Daniel and his friends, along with an estimated 50 to 70 other noble young men, carried from their home after a devastating war into Babylon as slaves. We read about four of them. What happened to the other 50 or 65? What happened to them? How come we don't hear their names? Did you know that the Bible tells us that those who are faithful, their names will be on record forever? Have you ever stopped to think that oftentimes when that phrase is used in the Old Testament, I will blot his name out of my book, it simply means I will not keep a record of this person's life because it's not worthwhile? Did you ever stop and think that when we stand in the presence of God, the only part of this life that's going to remain are those things that were pleasing to him? Everything else is going to be blotted out. That's what the Bema seat or the judgment seat is all about. The gold, the silver, the precious stones, that's what God approves of. The wood, the hay, and the stubble, that's what he doesn't approve of. What happens to the wood, hay, and stubble? Goes up in smoke. Gone forever. You might remember in Revelation chapter 3, there's a statement that he who is faithful, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. That really troubled me when I was a young believer because I could just see being made into a pillar and you're standing there for eternity. And I didn't understand it because someone had to bring in the historical background. To have a pillar made in your name was the highest honor that could be given you in ancient Rome. 
If you were a captain in the military, if you were a legionnaire, if you were a centurion, if you fought bravely on the battlefield, or if you were uh, possibly a wealthy citizen who did something great for your city, and your name became recognized, they would put a pillar in one of their great buildings, and they would inscribe on that pillar a record, kind of like what we do when we read the citations of Medal of Honor recipients. We read the citation, we read what they did, we stand in awe of their courage and their indomitable spirit, and that record is there for every generation following to read. So I ask you a question. If God summarized your life, what would he say? You know, there are some people in the Bible whose lives are summarized in a statement or two. David was the man, what? After God's own heart. If I could have that inscribed on a pillar, I'd be happy. So I bring this to you just to remind us our decisions are so important and also to remind us that most of God's promises come with conditions. We talk, We just sang, didn't we? Standing on the promises of God. Let's take a couple of promises. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He will lift you up. Do you see the condition? How about Romans 8.28? We know that God causes all things to work together for good. A lot of people like to put the period there. It's not there. To those who love God. To those who are called according to His purpose. What was it Isaiah said? They that wait upon the Lord will mount up with wings as eagles and run and not be weary and walk and not faint. And so those conditions are all related to attitude, priority, decision, action, and consequence. All right, let's move along. Page 9, Daniel's Appeal. Daniel speaks to the steward, and the word steward here is Melzar. It's actually a Pers Persian derivative. Uh, it's the equivalent of the butler in Genesis 41 and 5. You'll remember when Joseph was in prison. And it illustrates the first step in civil disobedience. The first step in civil disobedience is that you make an appeal. And in this case, you make an appeal to a lesser magistrate. I point out in your notes a book. It's worth getting. It's worth reading. It's called The Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrates by Matthew Trujillo. It deals with going all the way back into, I think, clear back into the Middle Ages. How many places around the world when they were under tyrannical leadership would appeal to their local magistrates and the local magistrates exactly as happens here with Daniel were compassionate toward them and shielded them from the abuse of the higher authority. Tyrannical power, whatever it may be. The equivalent in our country would be the county sheriff. A lot of people don't realize that the county sheriff is the highest authority in any county in the United States of America. And they have that authority constitutionally. And that's why many times when unjust laws are passed, 
I think recently there was a law that the governor of New Mexico was trying to pass. There are 33 sheriffs in the state of New Mexico. 30 of them said, we will not enforce this law. This is an evil law. That's the power of the lesser magistrate. <clears throat> it's important for us, you know, we're in an election year. Everybody's thinking about the presidency. The most important votes you and I cast are those for local authorities. The people who are in charge in our immediate area are so much more important many times. And Daniel proved this as he appealed to the steward. I've already explained to you the word vegetables uh, is a pretty wide range of things, fruits, vegetables, uh, various grains, seeds, and so on and so forth. And God bless them. Daniel says, test us for 10 days. Now, this took faith on his part, didn't he? I mean, the other people are eating really rich food. And he not wanting to violate, and if you want to go back, you can look in Leviticus chapter 11, and it'll explain to you some of the dietary laws of the Jews. And he didn't want to violate those because he felt that the safest place he could be as a slave in Babylon was in the hand of God, under the protective power of God. And so he made his decision. The other three joined him and... God blessed their faithfulness. Uh, you notice that after the 10 days, they were checked, and what did they find? Uh, they found, this really goes on into our next section, uh, they were better than anybody else. They looked better, they were healthier. Um, I think in one of the uh, places it talks about how they were fatter, I don't see the verse right at this point, but how they were fatter than everyone else. The word fatter there actually just means healthier. They had a healthier complexion, healthier appearance, and again, because of the providential care of God. Daniel trusted God to bless obedience to his word. And oftentimes God does this contrary to what we would think is scientific methodology. <clears throat> I have seen a lot of examples, read of examples through history, <clears throat> where people put themselves, uh, for example, uh, the book Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, if you've never read it, as a classic work on people that went through the uh, death camps in Germany. Viktor Frankl was a Jew. His wife died while they were in the concentration camps in the camp next to him. I remember as he was writing, he mentioned a certain date and he said, little did I know until later this was the day my wife died in the camp next to me. But in his book, he talks about people who even being given starvation rations would give their food away to those that were sick and those that were hurting, and those that were uh, maybe in worse condition than them, and somehow God sustained those people, giving all their food away, and many of them were able to continue on for a long, long period of, of time. It's amazing how God is able to bless, and he did it because of Daniel's discernment. 
And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here on discernment, but just to remind us, James 1.5 tells us, if any of you lacks wisdom, and by the way, real wisdom always involves discernment. Why is that? Because wisdom demands decisions. We have to sort out. Do I go to the left? Do I go to the right? What is the right thing for me to do? What is the right thing for me to say? You're dealing with someone who just lost a child. What do you say to them? Sometimes it can be very difficult. And sometimes when we pray about it and we ask God, what shall I say? The answer is, just listen. Just don't say anything. Just just give them an ear and listen to them and show your compassion. So if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given. That's a promise. Once again, a promise with a condition. And so we see in Daniel a young man, again, 14, showing discernment regarding historical events in verses 1 through 4. While everyone else is screaming, why did God let this happen to me? Daniel knew exactly why it was happening. It was happening because of the sin of his nation. He had discernment regarding faithful conduct in a hostile environment in verses 5 through 9. How well would we do in a similar situation? Again, I've read many, many stories of people that have done great. I'm about to share one with you as we close out our time this evening. He had discernment third in discovering the means to accomplish his goal of staying faithful. In verses 10 to 13 made a very reasonable request, would not endanger the steward in any way, and God blessed that experiment. Daniel had discernment in the ways of God in verses 14 to 21, and you can check out a couple of other passages, Psalm 103.7 and Hebrews 3.10. It's one thing to know God's works. It's a much deeper and a much more vital issue to know God's ways. And in Psalm 103.7, it tells us, Israel saw God's works, but Moses knew his ways. What a great difference. In Hebrews 13.10, talking about the same generation, the, the, uh, the Lord is quoted there as saying, they did not know my ways. They saw my works. You know, it's like some people go through life saying, wow, I can't believe God just did that. And someone else says, yeah, we've been praying for that for three years. They understood God's ways. They were part of what happened. Others just go, look what happened. All of this discernment, of course, had the providence of God behind it. And we see that God blessed him with favor, wisdom, success. Daniel outlived all the other of the three friends, living to see the captives return after the 70 years captivity in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. What an astounding and long ministry he had there in Babylon. And who knows how many he would have led to faith and eternal life. He also exercised linguistic discernment. And this is where I point out to you that the book's written late in life, probably 530 B.C., both in Hebrew and Aramaic, uh, I didn't put this in there for you, but the Hebrew portions are chapter 1, chapter 8 through 12. Chapter 1, <clears throat> chapter 8 through 12, and then the Aramaic are chapters 2 through 7. In the Aramaic portions, Daniel deals with matters pertaining to the citizens of Babylon and the Persian empires. 
whereas the Hebrew sections describe predominantly Jewish concerns, and they deal, of course, a lot with prophecy. And then you'll notice at the top of page 10, God blesses his word wherever it's found. I want to give you an example. You can read this later. But for now, I just want you to listen. Remember I told you sometimes we quote things that we have read years ago. It was probably in the early 80s that I read this account of one of our prisoners of war in Vietnam. And this guy was so indomitable. And I, I don't remember his name. It's been over 40 years since I read the account. The enemy could not break him. They tortured him. They starved him. They beat him. They kept him in solitary confinement because he was so defiant that they were afraid if he got around the other prisoners, that defiance would spread to the other prisoners. So they always kept him isolated from all the other American prisoners of war. To uh, impose their disgust and their uh, attitude of humiliation on him, they gave him the job in the evening of going to the pit latrine, and he had to get down in the pit latrine with a bucket, scoop it out, carry it away, and dump it away from the camp. Every day that was his job. He was not allowed to shower. He was not allowed to get clean. He did this every single day. One day he got down in the pit and saw a little piece of paper floating. And of course you know they wore kind of pajama type bottoms and he tucked it into the waistband of his pajama bottoms away from not seen by the guard that was watching. They always had a guy with a rifle watching over him. Finished his job, went into his solitary cell and unfolded what someone had used for toilet paper. The first page from the Gospel of John. Somebody had a pocket New Testament. And he sat there and he scraped it off and he began reading, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He was astounded. He had never been confronted with the Word of God in his life. Second day, he goes out, down into the latrine, scooping up. What does he find? The second page. And this continued until he found, second or third day, I don't know when, found the page that had the third chapter of John. And when he got to that most loved passage in the entire Bible, John 3.16, he read the words, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And that guy got down on his knees and received Christ as his Savior. There's a couple of lessons that come out of this. Number one, no one is in any condition of isolation where God can't reach them. Secondly, God blesses His Word wherever it's found. It doesn't matter if it's in a latrine. It doesn't matter if it's been used for toilet paper, and that ought to encourage you and me, because sometimes we're not very great vessels. The important thing is, is the Word of God there? 
God blesses his word wherever it's found. And we find here a man receiving Christ, entering eternal life, and he had one brief moment during the time of his imprisonment, and they used the tap code where they could communicate through a wall, and he had an opportunity to tap to a fellow prisoner who carried his story back to the United States or we would never have known he died in captivity. A child of God by faith in Christ. So again, the principle, you are never in such a situation that God cannot reach you, that His grace is not available, that your attitude to Him, doesn't matter what's going on around us, Daniel was able to take his eyes off the destruction of his nation, take his eyes off the conditions of slavery, and look vertically and keep his eyes fixed on the faithful God of Israel and what happened. He became a history uh, or a uh, hero throughout all of history. <coughs> That's the challenge that I leave you with tonight because we're living in a time of history when heroes are going to be made. There are going to be heroes in the Christian camp that are going to be made in the time in which we live. You don't have to be known. You don't have to be on the news. You know, most of the people in the Bible whose lives are on record live quiet, humble lives. They never made it into the news. Even their own generation didn't know them, but they're kept on record here so that you and I can read their stories. Let's hope and pray that we can stand among those people when we stand in the presence of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your grace. We thank you for the fact that you have given members of the human race freedom. You have given us the ability to choose. And you have so set up the framework of creation that wise decisions bring blessing and foolish decisions bring cursing and we suffer or we are blessed by the decisions that we make. Thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ. Help us to stand firm in it and never let it go. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.